0: Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Dr. Andrea Ghana. Andrea is a scientist and group leader at the Finnish Institute for Molecular Medicine, and he's also a researcher affiliated with the Broad Institute of Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital. So Andrea's work, generally speaking, focuses on large-scale genomic data analysis in a number of different common and complex diseases. But most recently, he's been leading a worldwide effort to understand the role of genetics in COVID-19. The project's called the COVID-19 Host Genetics Initiative, or COVID-19-HG, and it's really a first-of-its-kind, large-scale collaboration between hundreds of researchers around the world that are pooling together data and summary statistics from their research studies to try to get a better understanding of the genetics of this novel disease. So, Andrea, welcome to the podcast, Um, and I wonder if you could just maybe start by taking us back to the moment that you and your colleagues decided to start this initiative and why you decided to put it together?
1: Hey, yes, uh, thank you Patrick, for for inviting me to this this podcast. so So briefly, I think the initiative started back in March. We were um, the, the pandemic was coming from China and was uh, traveling through Europe. It didn't hit the United States yet, and um, it clearly immediately became clear that there was a variation in the severity of COVID 19 um, in patients. And so, you know, genetics—it's important uh, uh, in many diseases, and we thought that probably have a role. We didn't know how important was the role, but we knew there was some kind of role. And so, we wanted to start to explore that aspect, and we put out uh, very simply a website and a tweet. That was—that was the, you know, the effort we put in this initiative in the beginning. There were collaboration. At that time, only from Italy, uh, one group from Italy, one group from U.S., and one group from Finland. And uh, we didn't know if that's going to be a success or if that's not going to work out. Uh, but, but it turns out to, that was well received by the community. And that's uh, kind of also the power of social media, we would say. Uh, and uh, we probably, you know, made, started this initiative at the right time when, when the pandemic was growing. But it was not immediately obvious the role of host genetics. And so right now, we are um, around 200 groups and more than 1,000 researchers uh, in these initiatives. So it's been a very interesting journey. What do those
0: groups and researchers look like? Do you have any kind of high-level statistics of whether they're academic research groups, people from pharmaceutical companies, industry, biobanks? What, uh, what, what kind of groups has the initiative attracted?
1: yeah so it's mostly academic groups um and we have uh, uh, we cover more than fifty nations so it's a very diverse set of uh, of researcher we have also some pharma collaborators and some and some other industry collaborators uh but I think one of the most interesting things for me is that we're not only collecting researchers that are you know already part of the the human genetic network where we know each other quite well but we are Picking up a lot of clinician researcher and other researchers are not necessarily interested in, in host genetics, but they turn out to have samples and want to contribute in this initiative. And, and by doing that, we give them the opportunity also to participate more in this human genetic discovery effort that otherwise we will be cut out by, by normal channels. So so that's that's one of you know the advantage of having such a diverse pool of researchers.
0: Yeah. So, how does it actually work for the researchers who are participating? If you could explain to someone who's never been a part of one of these big consortium genetics projects, so everybody's collecting data more or less independently, but then pooling the data, or at least parts of the data, to uh, make a, a larger and in some cases much larger sample size than anyone would have individually. Could you maybe just walk through how that how that works?
1: Yeah. Sure. Uh, so, the the researcher, the first things can do is to go on the website and register. And when you register, you can um, describe your study, describe which assays you've been doing on your study, describe what's your research question. Uh, This is kind of new compared to other consortia. In this way, uh, we we not only put out the name of the people that are part of the consortia, but we also provide a database of studies that are out there. And and we actually provide the opportunity of the different studies to contact each other. We have a contact button on the website. So if two studies find that they have similar patient population and similar research questions, they can actually connect to each other. So that's, that's a cool feature. Then, then after you register, um, you basically have two ways. So one is that you share individual-level data, and, and that's probably that is mostly done by smaller groups which do not have computational capabilities in house or groups that want their sample to be genotyped. Uh, and so we provide the genotype service, but also the analysis service. And the second way is that you compute in-house uh, analysis uh, according to a certain analysis plan, uh, and then you share the summary statistics, and then we put them together. Um, the second type of analysis is the one chosen by large biobank that cannot share individual-level data. Currently, we have mostly studied doing the second approach, so sharing summary statistics. But once the, the researcher use this approach, both number one or two, what what we do is that we, we centralize the analysis, we put together the data, we do some quick quality control, uh, and, and then we put out the result immediately to, to the community.
0: So how many groups have submitted some kind of reasonable number, maybe just at least one uh, sample so far? Has it been a small number of groups that are doing the vast majority of the samples? Or, you know, what's the distribution
1: look like in terms of the people who are contributing? Yeah, so we have more than 20 studies that have contributed uh, out of 200 studies that have registered. So it's around uh, 10% right now. It's, it's actually mostly from Europe and from uh, we have also studied from Brazil, Qatar, and Korea. And the U.S. has been uh, surprisingly not very well represented, at least in, this, in the beginning. Uh, we have some from, from Partners Biobank in Boston and Biome in New York, yeah so that's that's the distribution more or less of the studies.
0: Does the geographical distribution make the make the analysis hard? Um, obviously, we, you want to have a representative sample, but that also sometimes makes the analysis challenging i'm I'm not at all an expert in this, but I've seen people talking about this um, association with blood type and whether blood type does affect or or doesn't affect severity. And there's a lot of discussion around whether blood type is correlated with ancestry, well, it is, um, and how that affects the analysis. Have, do, do you know if anyone in your consortium has been able to kind of get to the bottom of this or at least get an understanding of, you know, whether that association is, is likely to be real or whether it's due to different size groups from different parts of the world kind of being put into the same analysis?
1: Yeah yeah so that's a good question and uh, um so the the APO ABO association it's 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 interesting because of this concept of population certification and and uh, ancestry diversity between cases and control and i think uh you know in the in the article was published on new england journal of medicine um, a few weeks ago they point to that hit and 23me also seem to support that while in our meta analysis we don't find evidences. It's difficult to say if maybe it has to do with the severity of the disease, maybe it has to do with population stratification. We are now actually trying to understand how the results look like without... Because in our study, there is also this New England Journal of Medicine um, uh, summary statistics. So we're trying to see how the result looks like removing that one. And if there is variation across the studies... Uh, in UK Biobank, the signal doesn't seem to be strong. And we know that UK Biobank is generally well controlled in terms of population certification, but is also more a mild uh, COVID-19 population compared to their study. So one challenge that we are facing is, is that the analysis that seems to be more powerful is when we compare hospitalized COVID-19 cases with population controls. But the population controls is normally something that you want already to get from existing genotype courts rather than, you know, genotype new population controls, which no one is collecting in this pandemic crisis. Right. So, so when you when you take these population controls and you compare to your cases there, you have challenging matching, you know, ancestry and so on. So that's that's maybe what can introduce this uh, artifact. So that's the status. I don't think we arrived right to the bottom of. of of the problem, but that's going to be explanation.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And it, it probably will take some time to tease it out. So for people who aren't as familiar with the project, I know you're looking at very severe hospitalized cases compared to um, healthy controls, but also probably compared to milder cases. I think one thing that you all have done is is really carefully looked at all the different potential phenotypes or characteristics of the of the disease that you could study. I wonder if you could kind of go through a high level what are the different tests that you're doing or or planning to do whether it's severe mild asymptomatic i know you're also kind of using some of the existing machine learning models like the specter model potentially to uh, predict cases where there may not have been a positive test but you could effectively kind of infer that there was a positive test is that right
1: yeah yeah so so i think the you know the the, we have three degree of severity we look at basically um Individuals with COVID-19 that have assisted ventilation, then we look more in general for COVID-19 cases that are hospitalized. And then we look at COVID-19 cases no matter what, just reported uh, general. And then we compare these three groups with two main groups. One is population controls, so everyone else. And the other one is COVID-19 positive but not hospitalized for the first two analyses. And we we have different combinations, and we have also one, maybe I can speak later about that, about the predicted COVID-19 from symptoms. Until now, the, the one that seems to give us the strongest signal uh, is when we compare COVID-19 hospitalized versus population controls. There we have a very clear peak on, on chromosome 3. When we actually compare any COVID-19 versus population control, the peak on chromosome 3 goes down despite the sample size almost duplicate. It's 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 a it's a balance I guess, and we still need we need to you know decide some phenotype a priori to allow people to do the analysis, but then we can use this phenotype to refine uh, how we want to proceed. For example, everyone will bet that you know when we compare COVID-19 severe. Uh, with assisted respiratory support versus COVID-19, mild or moderate or non-severe, we see a strong signal there. And, you know, it, it might be, but and we have done that analysis, but it's, it, the sample size there is not great. Uh, and we don't see any amazing signal. So it's a fine balance between sample size and how accurate you want your phenotype to be. And we are still learning, basically.
0: How many people in the severe group? have you included approximately in the latest analysis? And and I'm interested in how that number compares to the number worldwide. Um, Where could you go in terms of increasing the size of the sample just by getting more research groups around the world who are presumably already collecting a lot of this data involved? Do you have any idea on the rough numbers?
1: So for the COVID-19 hospitalized, we have 3,200 cases. For the COVID-19 all, we have almost 7,000 cases. And controls doesn't really matter. We have like a million or something like that, yeah. <laughs> it's easy to get to get population controls. Where are we going? I think you know, I think uh, probably it's easier in the next round to, to reach the 10,000 cases in, in a month or so. A lot will depend on investment in, in, in genotype by granting agency, especially in the US, uh, which uh, hardly by the pandemic. I think in Europe there you know some large project you're you're probably aware on genomic England to do all genome sequencing on on ten thousand so so probably with Europe we can add you know other 20,000. but 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 the big number if they need to come they will need to come from u s um and there it depends a lot on what's the willingness of of the granting agency to to support that and until now they've been you know the n i h has been very supportive or actually. In their um, notice of interest, they have highlighted that study that a grant on COVID-19 genetic, They need to deposit the data in this initiative. So we have a potential to grow both from the genotype side and now we are trying to gear up also from the sequencing side and see what, where we're we going. But but it's tricky. I mean, more we grow, uh, more other challenges come into play.
0: Like uh, like what? From an anal- analysis perspective or or just simply coordinating so many groups and samples
1: i think I think from the analysis perspective um you know like this chromosome tree signal is very clear and clean, you know then there will more you larger sample size, you will not, not notice that people that are hospitalized for covid nineteen are not the general population. they have some characteristics that are such a demographic that are different, and that's not necessarily driven by disease may even maybe by comorbidity with COVID-19. And so what you pick up is really related to COVID-19 or related to other comorbidities or, or social demographic information. So right. I think we sit in UK Biobank with some of these GWACs on behavioral traits. Uh, and, and, and so it's, yeah, but, but, but I mean, I think there are other values clearly to, to create predictors, for example, using genetic score that would just benefit from sample size. Are you expecting to
0: find uh, are you expecting this, shift from genotyping to next-generation sequencing. So Genomics England, you mentioned earlier, who who we had on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, is planning to do whole genomes. There are a number of people in, in the consortium, I think, that are doing genomes or exomes. Are, are you expecting there to be a huge difference, stepping from genotypes to next-generation sequencing, or or not necessarily? Do you have any kind of predictions or thoughts based on the data you've seen so far?
1: Well, I mean, the the idea is that Exome and genome sequencing is valuable when we look at more rare uh, form of the disease. So if you take young individuals uh, without morbidity, that might have a value. If you take the general population, maybe, uh, but probably on bigger sample size than genotyping, uh, which would be hard, hard to reach. So difficult to say, but there, there is value. And, and, and anyway, it's an interesting exercise to be able to bring together uh, all these genetic data across different platform and bring them together. Absolutely.
0: I I wonder if we could just talk for a minute about this um, association on chromosome three. I know it's kind of hot off the presses. It's only been really validated over the last week or two, but I wonder if you could just discuss what we know today about it. And any potential associated with the disease and, and then where we have to go next in terms of fine mapping and, and understanding what's, what's actually going on there. I think um, for people who aren't as familiar with genome-wide association studies as you are, they, they probably don't realize all the work that has to happen after you find that initial peak and that there's not always a, a single gene under there that you can tell exactly what's going on and, um, and kind of understand the whole picture.
1: Yeah, so um, uh, we have this, chromo- this, this peak on chromosome three, and I think it's right now quite strong. Um, we see it particularly strong when we look at when we look at severe hospitalized cases versus control, and uh, um, when we actually look. And the, the effect size is it's not too far away from the one reported on the New England Journal paper. So I think it's it's an odds ratio one point five to one point seven so it's it's not bad uh it's comparable to other you know top signal we got from from complex diseases, but it's in the range of you know pleasant signal i would say is not this odds ratio one point zero one or something like that so there's definitely something there now uh if fall in a region uh of i l d and uh, in that region, there are several genes that might seem interesting. I think, in terms of distance, the closest is this LZTFL1, and the other one is CXCR6. Uh, and then there is uh, a couple of CCR3, CCR1, CCR9. So, all these genes, you know, you might know the CCR5 uh, in, in, in HIV. They they have to do something with infection. That's a little bit beyond me. Exactly what's the the function? On the paper, people seem to speculate also on these uh, SLC6A20, which interacts somehow with phase two, which is still involved in uh, a receptor. Yeah, yeah. So so, in terms of eqtl signals, nothing is strong. Um, supporter of any of this gene, I would say, in terms of association of this variant with other traits has been associated with monocytes uh, and uh, macrophages, inflammatory um, protein. So it seems to fit probably the inflammation pathways or something like that. But yeah, that's all. I think people are still trying to figure that out.
0: Yeah, so if I could maybe recap, make sure I get it right the part you mentioned about the odds ratio is is basically saying that people who carry one particular genetic variant at that location are 50 to 70% more likely to present with some kind of severe respiratory failure. And so we have this link between some gene in that area and an increased likelihood of respiratory failure. But the challenge right now is there's a number of different genes in that general vicinity and and there's a lot of work to determine which one is actually kind of the 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 cause rather than just kind of along for the ride from a genetics sort or of statistical sense is that right That's correct yes. yes So in terms of how this data and and these findings can be useful going forward what are you most excited about so there there may be additional hits as well besides this one are you most excited about how this data is going to be used to help Understand the fundamental biology of the disease and, and therefore help to develop better treatments, vaccines. Are you most excited about trying to do better personalized risk stratification, identifying people who are, you know, maybe fall in this high risk group from a genetic perspective but wouldn't seem high risk otherwise based on other things? you know which which of the above do you think are going to be the biggest impact or the most um, exciting parts of this?
1: I think if, if there is an impact, it's probably going to be on more on the biology side. I don't think that the prediction side is super relevant because we're not really a disease that needs, uh, you know, long term primary prevention or anything like that. And probably if there is a vaccination, there will be other demographics that are more valuable than genetic to the side or to vaccinate if, if we will not vaccinate everyone. And, and once you are hospi- admitted in the hospital, I can imagine there are other biomarkers that are probably more valuable to predict if you will, you know, end up in an ICU. So I don't see that to be particularly valuable. In terms of biology, it might be valuable, but uh, I'm not super expert into, into that. But in general, I think, uh, you know, genetic is, it's a tool that it's part of the toolbox. And uh, what I like of genetic is that almost every study has genetic um, so, if you want to understand if you know this this COVID nineteen is causal or this biomarker related causally related with COVID nineteen, or if two biomarkers are somehow related to each other in, in, in COVID nineteen space, uh, you don't need to have to have this measure both on the same study. You don't have to have measure COVID nineteen and the biomarker. You can use the genetic to link different uh, omics across different studies and maybe so to draw some causal inference out of that. So I think that, you know, what we are doing is more a service, providing, you know, a service that, uh, you know, uh, can be used to answer multiple research questions. I don't think there is one primary one.
0: Can you give an example of that uh, that linking, either in this uh, context or, or others, where genetics can kind of be a bridge between maybe two, two different studies or two different types of measurements?
1: One example in the um, in the causal inference space, I think I, I saw a recent a publication where if you do Mendelian randomization with these summary statistics on smoking, it looks that smoking is causal causal related with worst uh, COVID-19 outcomes, while the epidemiological association actually said the opposite, that smoking is protective. So that's a nice example of, of why you can use genetic to draw uh, causal inference
0: so what does the genetics reveal in that case? To, you can you look for the link between genetics and because we know that genetics influences whether somebody's more or less likely to smoke or, or at least become addicted because of the differences.
1: Yeah, you doesn't need the GWAS of smoking, a GWAS of COVID-19 doesn't need to be measured on the same study and you can use genetic to basically link the two. And you can do that with other biomarkers as well, let's say. I, I, I don't know to which extent you can push that, but, you know, you say you have a court where you have genetically characterized a certain protein or a certain biomarker uh, in, independently if people have developed COVID-19 or not. And then you have your GWAS result for COVID-19, then you can use, you know, Mendelian randomization approaches to link the two without having them measure on the same uh, study. This is just an example, but you can do genetic correlation which is basically something we have seen until now in the epidemiological space, right? Most of the epidemiology came out uh, is, well, people with COVID-19 have more neurological disorder. People with COVID-19 have uh, more of these and more of that. You can do that from, you know, if you have a strong enough signal in the, in the genetic of COVID-19, you can do genetic correlation. And 99% of the time will give you exactly the same uh, result as doing epidemiological correlation.
0: Right. Interesting. Have you you had any surprises from the perspective of organizing this collaboration? When you started off, I think you mentioned it was a website and and a tweet, and it kind of unfolded to where it is today with more than a thousand researchers in a Slack group. Have there been any uh, either positive or negative surprises in terms of organizing and, you know, building consensus around how you do this kind of analysis with a group of that size? Has... um, It seems like, at least from the outside, it's been a a very successful kind of sociological experiment as far as large scale science goes. Have you felt that way as well?
1: Yeah, I I think we didn't have any major problem. Um, I think people sometimes find the idea that we are not pursuing a publication directly. A little bit uh, um, unsettling, um, you know. There, it, there, 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 in science, there need to be some clear rules. Like, you know, I'm doing this because I get my co-authorship on a paper. Uh, and so, you know, when you say, "Well, you should contribute the data because that's good," uh, and you get acknowledged on the website, uh, but you know, we're not doing any paper right now, so it's not. It's going to be your name on any paper. You know, some people have to cope with that. But but I, I, and, and you know, the, the other challenge is what if I use your summary statistics, uh, add, you know, 2,000 samples and then publish a paper, uh, you know, what, what does it mean? Can I do that? Theoretically, you can do, why not? Um, but where does the rules apply when you have to collaborate and you can pursue your own? So th- there are some challenges with this new model, I think, where we make, and now we're doing in silico analysis where we basically say run, genetic correlation, run fine mapping and put them on the website immediately available. So how how long we can push this, you know, uh, open collaboration where everything is shared on the website and how much this clash against traditional publishing strategy, that's the fine balance. How did you decide to go about it
0: this way? Was it given the, you know, given the enormity of the situation and the essential nature of having data out as soon as possible, you felt like there was no other way to do it? Or, or have, you know, I, I, I think that you're probably a pretty big proponent of open science and getting the information out there as soon as possible, no matter what it is you're working on. So is this a, you know, an opportunity to try something radically different that also kind of was demanded by the, the times because it is something that's, that's worldwide and, and fast-paced and we don't have the time to wait for, you know, fights over authorship and, and those sorts of things? Or how did it come about?
1: Yeah, I think there are two reasons. One is that um, we want people to share their data. And if you start to say, you know, well, we are going to do, you know, this this paper and this paper, then more people maybe might be pursued to then do their own work before they share. So that was a reason. But it didn't seem really to affect that decision too much. The, but the second one is that, The situation is moving. I I don't know if there's really a good point. It might be in a year or so where you say, well, we are there and now it's time to close it. But it's it's constantly evolving uh, and we need more samples. It's clear. I mean, like, you know, I think the last estimate of irritability I've seen is non-significant. So we are not there yet, I think, to do any uh, any conclusion or something that deserves to be put out there i mean some people will do it with a lot of you know by archive or even a lot of publication all all along the way uh, but we decide that i don't think it's a wise investment there's nothing different than putting it on the website really
0: do you have a personally speaking a, a kind of long-term view on what this is likely to evolve into my i, I can kind of give my personal view that i think it's it's really my understanding is it's really challenging to develop a vaccine on the kind of time scales that we're talking about so it's likely to be 12 to 18 months before a vaccine is is available and and i think the other layer to this is that there's not to date been a successful coronavirus vaccine so there is a question of you know whether whether it can be done or not i i think i believe in human ingenuity, especially given the number of smart people that are working on this, that it will get solved. But I'm interested in, from your perspective, whether, especially living in a place where from an epidemiological perspective, or from a public health perspective in, in Finland, you've gotten it under control relatively um, reasonably, but there are other parts of the world where it looks like it may just be the, the virus is running its course for the foreseeable future until a vaccine is developed, do you kind of think about how your work fits into the the longer term likely scenarios or or are you just kind of trying to do the best science that you can now um and and uh, not worry too much about what's going to happen in two years, three years et cetera
1: yeah i i I wish I could say that was the first case, but i'm I'm probably more likely the second option i think uh, I, I, it's hard to imagine how this result can play in the global effort to find a vaccine or, or how they can have that type of impact. I think, you know, I, I imagine this one as providing a solid service to the scientific community uh, and, and trying to do that as most efficiently and, uh, you know, and openly as possible. And then it's, it's about others, I think to, to use this result in a, in a, in a good way, I don't think I can foresee an immediate impact on the global scale. Makes sense. How how different have
0: the responses of different consortium members been in your experience? From Because um, it seems like different, if we take biobanks, for example, different biobanks have very different uh, setups in terms of how easy it is to recontact participants in the biobank, to collect longitudinal data. This UK biobank has you know, started to run a very large scale study looking at whether the half a million people in the biobank have had a COVID nineteen test or not. But not not all biobanks are set up in the same way. have Have you um, have you seen any kind of models that have been particularly successful, or other models that have been a little more slow moving in responding to something new like this?
1: Yeah, I think the Dutch biobanks have doing or Dutch study have been doing an amazing job. I think Lifelines. Was uh, uh, already sending out questions. I mean, we got, they were the, one of the first to contribute and they out of self reported COVID 19 cases. And they could prepare a questionnaire and send it out in a matter of weeks. So, and and that's happened also with other Dutch uh, courts. So that was a nice example on how things can be. But I think they have a very good relationship with their participants as well the u s biobanks uh they have been they don't think they are set up for that maybe only all of us uh to recontact participants and and, and things like that and in general they have been very slow in obtaining permission and there is a despite the link with electronic health records, my understanding is that there's been a lot of chart manual chart review to actually extract the um, that in in Finland, here, we have uh, you know there was also very fast. We linked the infectious registry, and uh, with with FinGen it was very fast. And now there are some studies that they are recontacting participants.
0: Right. Yeah. It's it's interesting how the because there are a lot of different ways you can do it. Right. You can ask people directly, but it may not be as reliable. You can link to healthcare records, but if they're if they're not well organized or if they're not in electronic readable format, then um, that also doesn't work. So uh, I suspect, I, I don't know how much of this will stick and how much of it will, yeah, how much of it will kind of go back to old habits. But I have, I guess I'm optimistic that we might be able to develop slightly more responsive models of doing research like lifelines that you described seems like a perfect example that if you can recontact participants and, and spin up a new study, it, you know, it shouldn't have to be a global pandemic to kind of respond in an agile Format to to answer new questions or or try to collect a new form of data that might help answer a question. Is that I, I feel like you're probably thinking the same way at FIM as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. So this is what we are working in Finjan very hard to create a recontacting platform. That's clearly the future, and and you know the future will will, will also be country specific. Uh, you know there is a lot of distrust uh, in some country towards the government and towards uh, some of these research studies. So we hope in Finland where this is relatively low, uh, there's a low distrust uh, and a high trust that the response is going to be good. But, you know, probably the most vulnerable population are the less likely ones, which is going to further buy us.
0: I actually wanted to ask about that. I saw in some of the tweets that went out the other day that you have quite a, a wide international representation in COVID-19 HD. So I think uh, some some of the... Qatar Genome Project is submitting samples. Um, you've got people all across Europe. Has it been part of the strategy deliberately to make sure that you have representation from across the globe? And and I mean, like you mentioned, I think it's if it's not managed actively, then it's it's really difficult to be representative. Is that a, part of a one of the programs of work that you all have going? Is to kind of reach out to places where you know aren't aren't they're not fully represented in the in the study at the moment and make sure that you have good coverage.
1: Yeah. More than reach out, we kind of made very clear on every call and as much as possible that we pay for genotyping if you need it. Uh, and so if you're Luxembourg and you contact me because you need to genotype I'm like, mm. <laughs> you know, maybe you can afford it. But uh, you know, if you are a, a researcher from Egypt, Kenya, uh, and you reach out and you know that that's the case. I think almost every researcher that I that you know really need help uh, to, to genotype got support from us or from Erasmus or from Illumina or so. So this free genotyping and free support also for DNA extraction, I think, make a great difference in those uh, countries. Yeah, that's
0: great. And I think it it just makes the results much more applicable, right? If you can if you can be sure that it's not something that's isolated to one specific area of the world, but it's something that can be generalized, then it, it'll ultimately strengthen the science. Um, but before we close out here, I was wondering if you've man- managed to find time for any of your other work. Are you focused 100% right now on COVID-19 HG and and related work? Or, or are you also continuing some of your other common complex disease and trait? work in the odd hours?
1: No, I'm not I'm not 100%. I, I mean, i mean probably like 20% on COVID-19 in HGI. Uh, it's it's surprisingly light. So how we set it up was relatively light organization. Um, you know, mostly, I mean, there's now some work, more work for the metanize and everything, but it's kind of, you know, automatic in the way people submit summary statistics, fill an online form, everything gets automatically reported on the website. So it's, it's, it's pretty light organization. Yeah, I mean, I'm continuing my work. Um, is there anything particular that you're interested in? Um,
0: Nothing in particular. I'd be interested to hear what what else is it that you're working on. If uh, don't have to give anything secret away. If you have something that's unpublished or exciting, but I'm I'm curious to hear.
1: Well, I mean, I, I really like to put data together. I'm kind of a collectionist of data, so uh, I, I'm very excited of this in registry project we've been pushing for a couple of years now where we are putting together all the registries or at least all the largest nationwide registry in Finland into one place. And then we have similar projects in Sweden as well. So I think it's, you know, the number of questions you can ask her is really unlimited. One example is uh, Oxine in my group. She's working on uh, um, uh, ongoing selection. So lifetime reproductive success, uh, how many children you have and so on only from an epidemiological perspective. And, you know, the studies done until now maybe are like, you know, on a couple of diseases. We can do it on 2,000 diseases across uh, 7 million people from Sweden and Finland, which have been followed for their entire reproductive life because they're born between 56 and 77. Uh, And we can see how... You know, having any disease impact the number of children to be childless. We see if your brother on system has more children or not. So we can look at balancing selection, sex differential selection by just using family design. And then, you know, when we will have more exome sequencing data, uh, we can also then look at uh, constrained gene and selection on those and see if the epidemiological observation fits the genetic observation but there's so many things. I mean, I'm coming from a lot of uh, background in in genetics, but there are so many things you can do just from, uh, you know, registry data and epidemiology, uh, which I found very exciting right now, which I'm trying to focus on.
0: Yeah. So, so it sounds like you're, you may be shifting ever so slightly into wider and wider variety of data that you can analyze, right? Because one of the, uh, one of the exciting parts, but also challenges of registry data is, is you then kind of end up with sometimes a data overload, right? Where you've got all of a sudden records from, I don't know how many millions of people, but going hundreds of years and, um, some of it's structured, some of it's unstructured and, you know, that's not even kind of taking into account genetic data you might generate. So, so you're, are you, um, excited by kind of analyzing these multivariate Types of data and, and making sense of it on a kind of population scale is that um, is that an accurate summary?
1: Yeah, I think so. And, and combining genetics, so not just treating genetics alone, or like you know, there's a lot of people that like look at genetics and genetic explain that and those, but genetics is just one other piece of the puzzle, I would say. And you know, it's, and and it's nice to to look at that in the context of all these uh, epidemiological data that we have. So that.
0: Great. Well, so maybe just to close off here, I'm I'm conscious of time. I was wondering if you could just take a second to think about what you think is the most exciting unsolved problem in in genetics or, or medicine right now. Whether it's something you're 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 working on or others are working on, what are you most what are you most excited about? You think will have the biggest impact? Um, it, it can be specific or, or it can be kind of more general, if you think. But I'm I'm interested to hear what um, what you're most excited about.
1: Yeah, that's a a good question. I think personally, um, um, I think that we have been unbelievably successful in in, uh, genetic of complex traits, especially of behavioral and cognitive traits. We don't know very little about the biology of cognition. I mean, we know how neuron and synapses works, and we know how, you know, fMRI scan, that showed some area of the brain lighting up. Um, But with genetics, we can really now take tales of, cognitive polygenic score or or risk-taking polygenic score or other you know uh, behavioral traits and there is a huge variation in the population and look at those and try to understand the biology maybe doing ips work or or functional follow-up of that so i think bridging that that behavioral uh, genetic result with more biology is is, i think uh, something that interests me at least but but yeah that there is a lot of other things in terms of diseases but i think this is is where uh, you know there's more fascinating things to be found.
0: Yeah, well, I think the the example you gave. I mean, it's such an incredibly complex area, right? How something as fundamental as genetics plays a role in behaviors as complex as um, you know risk taking or or you know personality traits, those kind of things. It's there's an amazing and complex story to unravel between those. Well, great. Thanks. I really appreciate it. I think if people want to keep track of you, they can follow you. I know on Twitter, you're at A-N-D Ghana, A-N-D-G-A-N-N-A. The COVID-19 host genetics initiative is covid19hg.org. Is there anything else that you'd you'd like to add? Are you hiring? Are you looking for collaborators? Um, Anything you'd like to shout out?
1: Yeah, we are, we are hiring. Uh, direct message me if you're interested in any of the things I, I spoke about. Um, and for the COVID-19 Genetic Initiative, we're certainly looking for uh, more sample and more people getting involved. Uh, so please reach out. And yeah, thank you, Patrick, for, for inviting me. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks for being a part of it.